Well, welcome, church. I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's been a great worship service so far, um, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be starting a new series, our Easter series here. So this week, next week, and then the following week is Easter. So um, I will tell you that this week I speak, but next week, come back for uh, uh, Jake Ingram is going to be preaching uh, on Palm Sunday. So I'm excited about that. That's going to be a good time. Um, if you look for me, I won't be in here. I'll actually be working with the kids uh, to see how that uh, ministry's going. I want to help out there as much as I can. So um, that's where I'll be, but I'm excited. So in that vein, we, um, we have a couple of things here. So if you got one of these, we've sent these out to our local community, our local uh, neighborhoods. It has us on the back and just a, a short invitation for our Easter service. So if you got one of those, that's what we're doing. That's what we're up to, um, and uh, we're excited about that. If you're interested in helping us bring more people to our Easter service, we have these in the back. These are little business cards that you can take a couple and hand them to friends or coworkers or neighbors and invite people to come uh, for Easter, which is going to be great. It's going to be a great time. So the information is on the back that they need to know. So that'll be what those are. We've got only, we have a limited supply of these bad boys. So if, you, if you're feeling good, you're feeling excited, you take some, pass them out. But if you're feeling like, oh, no, I probably won't do that, then just leave them. It's okay. We'll find people. I'll hand them out. Um, I kind of get, I've annoyed the local coffee shops and cafes with all the stuff that I give them. So they see me coming and they close up shop. So um, as we start our Easter series, let me just open us in prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity uh, that we have, Lord. We ask God that you would speak through us, that you would show us what you'd have us know from this text and that your words would reign in our hearts as we leave this place and as we go about our day and our week, uh, that you would be with us, that you would be speaking to us, and that you would move us, Lord. Uh, give us hope, Lord. Give us hope for the future because of what you've done for us. In your name, amen. So uh, as I start this Easter series, uh, it, it's going to be an interesting road. So we get to talk about something pretty exciting this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but if you've ever faced a trial uh, or, or, or a hardship or something difficult in your life, have you ever wondered, you know, this whole Jesus thing, where, where's the hope? in that. I, I seem to do this. I have a lot of hope in my life at times, and then other times when I face, seemingly when I face difficult things, I think, where, where is the hope that, that I desperately need? Hope is seem somewhat fleeting for me. I can, I can sometimes get it, and sometimes it's just not there. And I face trials, and I, and I get through those trials, and, and I think, man, that would have been so much easier if I had had hope through that. If I had, had put my hope in Jesus through that, and, and I know that Jesus is the Christ, and I know Jesus is the Messiah, and I know he gives us hope, but where is the hope? Where is the hope when you face something that is so difficult, you're not sure how you're going to get through it? And I know many of you are sitting here this morning wondering the same thing. Maybe you're experiencing a trial right now in your life, and you're going, man, I don't, I don't know what Josh is going to talk about, but I just need hope. So can we just, can you just show me where they sell the hope? Because I would buy that, I would buy a ton of it. I need hope in my life. And hope is one of these fleeting things that's difficult to nail down. What is hope? How does it help us through difficult times? And I have a friend in my life, um, uh, a, a friend, her name is Mary. Uh, no, not Mary here, Mary in Colorado. I grew up with Mary. Um, I, I started doing ministry, and she was in the ministry that I was involved in, and she taught me a lot. She's a mentor. She's a friend. And anytime I think of hope, 
I hope she doesn't listen to this. She doesn't, she doesn't have time to listen to my sermons, so she probably won't listen to this. But every time I think of, man, I need hope, she comes to mind. And you think I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. This is what this woman is. She is the living, breathing hope. She walks into a room and the room lightens, not because she's the life of the party or because she's quick with a joke. It's because she has this hope. And, and I found myself thinking about hope this week, going, what am I going to say about hope? And, and I thought about Mary, and I, and I for a moment thought, oh, well, well, Mary's life has gone pretty well. So, of course, that she, she has hope. She's never really faced anything difficult. And it took me about 30 seconds to remember Mary's life. And I went, that is crazy. You know, about 10 years ago, I get a call from Mary's husband, who's also a mentor of mine, and he calls me and he says, hey, I just want to let you know, Mary's been rushed to the hospital. Come to find out Mary had a heart attack, and she had to have surgery. And, and if it had been 10 years prior, it would have had to have been open heart surgery. But because of technology and where we are, it was, she was able to, they were able to not have to open her up, but they were able to perform the work on the valve that she needed uh, or, or, orthoscopically, I think is how you say that. And so I went, well, Mary's been through that. How did she keep the hope? I would talk, I talked to her after the, sur- the, the, the procedure, and all her family flew in from out of town because they didn't know. It was, it was tough. It was a big deal. And she had this hope. And it's funny because Mary didn't have hope that she would make it. That's not what she placed her hope in. She placed her hope in something else. And as I began to think more about Mary and her life, and, um, and I, I realized, I remembered that uh, Mary about five years ago had a seizure. And I got the same call from my friend, and he said, Mary's had a seizure. And they did a scan on her brain, and they found a tumor. Mary had a brain tumor, and they had to do emergency surgery, and they went in and they removed the tumor. And her family flew in from out of town all over the U.S. To, because they weren't sure. Mary made it. She made it through, but, but she didn't make it through thinking she would make it through. And then a, a, a few years after that, Mary and I have a common friend, and, and that friend was diagnosed with breast cancer, stage four. And she fought that for four years. Mary's best friend. <laughs> the whole time, Mary had hope. She didn't have hope that her friend would make it. She can't predict the future. And, and her friend didn't make it. She passed away. Where does the hope come from? I want hope like Mary has it. And she's not perfect. She's, she doesn't live a sinless life. And she doesn't have hope because of her circumstances. In fact, her circumstances actually drive her hope. It's almost the thing that produces at least the opportunity for hope. So how does Mary do it? So I want you to take a minute and think just for a minute about what your life would be like if you had that kind of hope. This hope is not circumstantial. This hope is not the the foreknowledge that you're going to make it through or that your friend's going to make it through or you're going to make it, you're going to find a new job or or, or that you're you're not going to get laid off or that your marriage will make it or that 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 the the cancer that was found again in, in your friend's body is not going to take his life. That happened to me. That's my friend Zach. That's not the hope. But whatever life gives you, you would be able to produce this hope.
Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you like it if somebody far, far away preached a sermon and they used you as an example because of the hope that you have? What would your life be like? I can tell you my life would probably look different. I would probably say different things. I would probably act differently if I had that kind of hope. I can imagine God and Jesus getting together before Jesus came down as a baby. And God and Jesus are talking. And they've already figured out and discussed what Jesus has to do. He has to die for the sin of the world. He has to be the sacrificial lamb. And so they've got that part figured out. And as God and Jesus talk, God is telling Jesus, now Jesus, you are going to be You're going to be on the earth, and you're going to be working with these people, these humans. You need to teach them how to find this hope. Because we both know, once you die, once you raise again, and once you're seated at my right hand, they are going to need hope. And so I can imagine Jesus and God dialoguing about what that looks like. How does he teach the people that walk with him for three years, what hope looks like. And one of Jesus' disciples took notice. Many of them did. But in this particular case, he took notice. And he took careful care to write down what Jesus did so that you and I would have hope. And that's the God we serve. He gives us an opportunity to see and understand where this hope comes from. Because you and I know, and God knows, that life is rough. And for some of you, it's extra rough in unfair ways. So, Jesus does something. His disciple writes about it, and we get to look at it this morning. So, let's take a look at it. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 11. And I'm going to read the whole thing because I'm feeling bold this morning. 44 verses. Don't worry, we'll get through it. Now, as we read this, some of you go, yeah, 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 I see it in my Bible. It's the death of Lazarus. We know the story. We've read it a hundred times. But I want you to read it like you're living in the first century in Israel. John pens this thing right before the fall of Jerusalem. So, Pretend that you are getting this for the very first time. There's things you know about Jesus, there's stories you know, but you don't know everything, and you definitely don't know who this guy Lazarus is. So read with me this passage. Chapter 11, verse 1, here we go. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Parentheses, key. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, we'll just stop right there for a second. If you're reading this for the first time, you know, if you know anything about Jesus, one of the most famous stories of Jesus was Mary, and there were a lot of Marys back then. I'm sorry if your name's Mary. It was a common name back then. There are a lot of Marys, but there's this one Mary, and she anointed Jesus' feet with a perfume that cost over a year's salary. You know about that one. And as she wept, 
She washed his feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. If you knew anything about Jesus, chances are you'd heard that story. So John is saying, hey, you know, you know Mary? You know Mary. You know Mary? This is the same Mary, and she's got a sister Martha and a brother Lazarus. Okay, we're caught up. John also takes careful, a careful, careful time in describing what Jesus thinks of Lazarus. Did you catch that at the last so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. They don't even say his name. They don't even need to say his name. Now, if you just play that out for a second, Mary and Martha's brother is sick, and he's so sick that he, they don't think he's going to make it. They need the healer. They need Jesus. So they, so they send word to Jesus, and in doing so, they don't even say his name. John wants you to know that. This is how much these two women trusted this guy Jesus. They would put everything, all their hope of their brother's uh, life and not even say his name because they trust Jesus so much they know Jesus knows who they're talking about. Can you imagine just praying that way just for a minute? If you just prayed for your friend who, who is deathly sick in the hospital and you don't even use his name, you just say, no, Lord, I know. I know you know him. That's faith. These two women had faith. So that's one point John makes. Jesus really loves this guy. Jesus really loves this guy, and he really loves his two sisters. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Okay, an interesting thing to say. Now Jesus, again, here's number two, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he dropped everything he had and he sprinted for Lazarus. No, that's not what it says at all. No, no. Now Jesus loved them, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. That's very counterintuitive. If you're reading the story for the first time, you're going, okay, I know who Lazarus is now because it's the, it's the brother of Mary, and we know who Mary is, and we definitely know who Jesus is. And John makes the point twice to say that Jesus loves Lazarus, so much so that his sisters don't even need to mention his name. So he does this thing that is the opposite, the, the absolute opposite of what you would do if you had the power to heal someone who is sick. You wait two days. You wait two days. And then Jesus says, okay, time's up. Let's go to Judea. Verse 8. I did that twice, in case you're wondering. That's 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. Are you going back? You can see in the disciples' minds the reason maybe he doesn't want to go is because we're going to die if he goes. So it's like, oh man, Lazarus, I really want to heal Lazarus. But if we go there, we're going to die, so we're just going to hold off. But then he says, no, we're going. So they have a big question. Verse 9, Jesus answered. <laughs> this is an amazing answer. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And his disciples are going, what? What does that have to do with anything, Jesus? We know how daylight works. Your friend who apparently you love quite a bit is sick, and you hold off for two days, and then you say you're going to go? Why in the world didn't we just go back with the messenger? 
In fact, we probably could have beaten the messenger. We were used to walking. We walk everywhere, Jesus. We could have beaten the messenger back, and we could have fixed this problem. But now you're going on and on about daylight. And John has very carefully penned something here that I don't want us to miss. Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus has the power to fix Lazarus's problem. And he didn't do it on purpose. He didn't do it on purpose. And then Jesus says, in a really Jesus-y kind of way, watch me. Watch what I'm about to do. Pay attention. You only have me for a short while. You are going to need this when I'm gone. You're sitting here wondering how you're going to get through your trial. John is telling you, he hand wrote you a letter 2,000 years later for you, to, for you to understand, pay attention. Jesus is about to do something. Pay attention because you'll need it. You'll need it when there's no more light. Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. You can bet what the disciples say. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus, that guy that I love so much, is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. I'm going to show you. Then Thomas, Thomas could be my favorite person in the entire New Testament besides Jesus, of course. Thomas, he's a, he's, a, he's a class act. Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, sure, let's, let's also go so that we may die with him. And this is the same Thomas that after Jesus has risen from the dead, pretty much all of the disciples understand and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And Thomas is like, uh-uh, fool me once, people. Not again. Have you ever heard of the phrase, once bitten, twice shy? Thomas, I'm pretty sure, wrote it in, you know, Aramaic or whatever he spoke in Greek. No, not fooling me again. I'm going to put my hand in his side and my fingers in his wrists before I believe that this is the Son of God. Same Thomas. Same Thomas is going, oh yeah, okay. Let's go, guys, so that we can all die with him. I think it's sarcasm. I think Thomas is predicting and is thinking they're going to die, and this is it. Okay, this is what we signed up for, I guess. So then Jesus and his disciples go. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them for the loss of their brother. They're, they're kind of famous, actually. They're, they're a famous family. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Martha was kind of in charge, in case you read any more about Martha. She's, she's the boss. Martha's the boss, and she goes out to talk with her Lord. She has seen him heal hundreds, maybe more. Instantly, she's seen him heal and has probably heard stories of him healing people remotely. Martha goes out to talk to her Lord, who she trusts. 
she has a few things to say to him. Can you hear your own prayer in Martha? You've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and he just doesn't seem to do what you want him to do and it would be so much easier if he would just do what you ask. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, Martha and Mary, uh, Jesus have this exchange. Martha knows Jesus so well that she can complain to him. <laughs> that she can say to him, Jesus, I asked you to do something and you did not do it. Why? Jesus, what I'm experiencing is waste. You are wasting my time and my life and my feelings because you have the solution and you just didn't show up. Have you prayed that before? I have. As my friend Zach slips away, I prayed this. Why? Why would you do this? I've seen you do it a hundred times. Why wouldn't you fix it? And then Jesus does that thing, at least Mary or Martha thinks it's that thing, that we all do with, with great intention when someone has experienced loss. And I've, I've heard the words come out of my mouth and people have said it to me. My friend Zach passes away, and people over and over and over said things like, he's in a better place. He's no longer suffering. The cancer that took his life is no longer in his body, right? You heard that. And my response typically was, well, thank you, that's nice sentiments. And inside I'm going, what about now? What about right now? What about what I'm feeling right now? Because it could have been avoided if Jesus had just listened. And Jesus says this to her. He's going to rise again. And the story's building. And the tension is building. And the reader, for the first time, is sitting on the edge of his seat and going, no way. No way. What is Jesus talking about? Why would Jesus say that to Martha? What is going to happen? And Martha says, yes, Jesus, I know theology. You've taught me theology. I know what's going to happen. I, too, will rise again. We're all going to rise again on the last day. I get it. And Jesus says to her, John is probably crying at this part when he's writing it. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Martha doesn't know what he's talking about, but she knows who he is. She obviously trusts him. She trusts him enough to send messages to him without even mentioning Lazarus' name. She trusts him enough to go to him and say, why did you do this? Why didn't you do this? She trusts him. And it's like, it's like one of those reset buttons that you, you hit the reset button, you go, whoa, Jesus, 
the resurrection and the life, she may have even thought, yeah, I know who you are. Why didn't you fix it? And she says, one of the best lines, she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I believe you, who you are who you say you are. My problem is right now. I know that you've come into the world. I know you're the Messiah. What about right now? And that's where the conversation ends. Maybe she thought she'd pushed him enough. She'd said her piece. After that, verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There it is again, statement of faith. Lord, I know you could have fixed this. I trust you. I believe you. In fact, that's the problem. I believed in you, and you didn't do this. Why? It feels like such a waste. Why are you wasting, Lord, when I've seen you heal person after person after person? Why are you wasting this? And Jesus doesn't treat Mary the way that he treated Martha. That's, that's key. That's important. Jesus treats everybody the way that we need to be treated, <laughs> not, a, not a blanket response. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And I can imagine him remembering the conversation with his father and how hard this would be. Jesus, you're going to go down there and you're going to die for these people and before you do, you have to give them hope and it's going to be hard. It's going to be really, really hard. So he sees everyone, and he's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And this is where Jesus breaks. Jesus, the one who has the answers, the one who has just told Martha he's the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the one that was before time, and is now in time and will be until time is no more. Jesus, the one who sat at the right hand of the Father and hatched this plan before time began. Jesus, the one who knows that Lazarus is going to be healed. And he weeps. It's because he's walking with these women. And he's remembering Lazarus' life and he feels their pain. And he knows how bad it hurts. Jesus wept. And maybe some of the most painful verses of the story. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus, we know. Jesus loved Lazarus. Then the reality sets in. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Can you, can you imagine Jesus walking into Bethany? 
with his disciples, and every person there has, knows about him and knows what he can do and knows what he's done, and they're all going, what are you doing here? How dare you show up here? You said you loved him. And his disciples kind of following behind, like, oh, don't look anywhere. Stones are about to start flying. They're probably embarrassed. They'd seen Jesus heal somebody remotely. He could have just said, okay, Lazarus is healed. But he told them to watch him. John wants you to know to watch Jesus. Watch what he's about to do. He had to endure the criticism and the cynicism and the I know how to do it better. If I had that power, I would have just healed him. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, we just talked about this, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. He's been there four days, Jesus. I sent word to you when he was alive, and that's how long it took you to answer me. Four days. And four days is important. Four days is important. Because the culture, the Jewish culture, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, understanding of the time was that sometimes, sometimes, people would die. And their thought was the spirit would hover over the body until the face changed, the complexion, the sunken cheeks. We've all seen it. And once the, the body changes, the spirit decides to go on. This is what they believed. And so you can imagine Mary and Martha whispering to Lazarus when he was alive, it's okay, it's bad, we know it's bad, but we just sent for the Messiah, we just sent for Jesus, the healer, he's coming, it's okay, just hang on, hang on a little longer. Mary, go out to the road. Tell me when you see Jesus coming because Lazarus needs to know. He needs the encouragement. No painkillers, no doctors, just waiting for Jesus. And Jesus, Lazarus gets sicker and sicker and sicker, and then he breathes his last breath. And they go, no, hang on. We still got a little time. Maybe Jesus can come and, and make the spirit go back into his body, and it's going to be fine again. And as the face begins to change, they go, okay, he's gone. And they wrap him up, and they put him in the tomb, and then Jesus saunters in four days later. One last time, Martha, Martha reminds Jesus what she asked him to do. Jesus, he's been in there four days. We can't roll the stone back. It's too late. It's too late. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And I can imagine Martha giving the signal. So they took the stone away, and then Jesus looked up and said one of the most amazing prayers you'll ever read. You're going to memorize something out of the story. Memorize this prayer. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, and I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says, Father, you and I have talked about this. I know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen, and I know it's your power. But these people are struggling. They're grieving. They're mourning. 
And they, if I don't do this, will confuse you with me. I know that's confusing for our Western mind, but they will confuse this for a little magic parlor trick. It's not a magic trick. It's your power. And Lord, I want them to know that, I, that you sent me. So I'm saying this prayer for their benefit, even though we've already worked it out. What if we prayed like that? Lord, you and I have talked. I know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. But I just need everybody else to know what's going to happen. And I know they, they, I need them to know that it was you. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And you can imagine every jaw hitting the floor. What in the world? No one saw this coming. Four days in the grave, he was gone. Four days in the grave, and Jesus has come out, and the guy walks out. No one knows what to do. No one knows, knows well, do, we, do we put him back in? Like, I don't know. What, what should we be doing? And Jesus has to give them instructions. Like, okay, guys, he's really alive. Go take the grave clothes off. Set him free. Man, what power. Take the grave clothes off and let him go. So here I am wondering about the trials that I face. I'm wondering about the trials that you face. How do we get that? It's not a magic trick. It's not a way to make our life better or easier. Where is the hope? Where is the hope in your life? Where is the hope in my life? And the hope is in the resurrection the one who calls himself the resurrection. It's not a place. It's not heaven. It's not heaven. That's not where we put our hope. We don't put our hope in a philosophy or a theology or an ecclesiology. We put our hope in the one who calls himself the resurrection, the one who calls himself the life. That's where we put our hope. Mary and Martha had their hope in the resurrection. They even knew he was the resurrection. They still didn't know what was going to happen. The point is not that we know what's going to happen, and the point is not that our circumstances somehow are easier for us to bear, and that's what produces hope. Trials are opportunities for us to know where our hope comes from. So this is what I want you to do. Reach under your chair. Under your chair is taped an envelope. I know. Go ahead. If you don't have one, maybe in the balcony, there's a couple around you. We do, I think we hit every other chair on the balcony. Yep. You got it? Open that envelope up. Now, before you make fun of this, I made this. <laughs> Carol did not help me, although Jane cut them and stuffed them for me. Thank you, Jane. And my family put these under the seats. I foolishly thought I could do it in 30 minutes and it took my whole family about two hours. <laughs> this is what I want you to do with this. And this is going to work so well for some of you and some of you are going to go, okay, nice try, Josh. And I get that. It's okay. For seven days, I want you to put this in a place that you will see it multiple times a day. Do it. If it's a book, if it's your refrigerator, if it's your mirror, if it's, your, it's your, your sun visor in your car or your dashboard, don't put it on the windshield. Cops will find out. 
Put it somewhere you're going to see it multiple times a day. And this, is, this, this will work if you take it seriously. <laughs> you read this, and you ask yourself the question, do I believe this? And you remember the story of Lazarus. Jesus says, when you're not sure if you're going to get fired or not, when you've received the news about your mother's diagnosis, when you've had another fight that's lasted all night with your spouse, whatever it is, you read that and you ask yourself the question. And if your answer is no, then I would talk to him about it. If the answer is yes, your response is, Lord, show it to me. I just need a little hope today. You see, our hope is in a person. It's not in circumstances, and it's not in his power. The hope is in Jesus himself. So, God never wastes a moment. Everything that you experience is for a reason. John wants you to know that. Jesus wants you to know that. And he is the best recycler on the planet. Everything you experience is for a reason. So watch him closely. Do you believe this? We have an opportunity, again, to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. We're going to take communion. And when we take communion, what you're saying is, I believe that the resurrection and the life does not waste a moment of my life because he's got a plan, he's up to something, he's doing something, and even though I don't know if I'm going to make it through, I don't know if my mom's going to make it through, I don't know if my friend's going to make it through, I know he is the resurrection and the life, I do believe this, and I'm going to believe it, I'm going to show you by taking the elements. So by taking the elements, you were saying, yes. Jesus died for me, he rose for me, and that is where I get my hope. And we get to do it this morning. So if you're new or if you're newish and you've never taken communion before, or maybe you just have never taken communion before, this is how we do it. It's nothing weird, don't worry. I'm going to read a passage, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to take the elements. And when the time's right for you, get up and take the elements, the bread and the juice. And by doing that, you're saying, yes, Jesus died for me. Yes, I believe he rose again. And yes, he will bring me home one day. So, this is the passage. Paul says to a church not unlike us, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says to them, and he says to us, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you've paid attention, if you've watched me, if you know who I am, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever we drink, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is where we get our hope. And our hope is not in the way our life is going to go. Our hope is not in whether we're going to make it or not. Our hope is in Jesus. Let's pray together.